You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Okay, Ephesians. I guess I've had school on my mind. I, I, I've been thinking about school all week. I've been thinking about my, my freshman year, Bible college, Ellendale, North Dakota. Daniel's the only person who knows where that's at. Uh, and a little town in North Dakota. There had been a college in that spot since 1899. That's not when I attended. I was there later. But uh, I was, in 1899, they started a college that was a trade college. It became a teacher's college. It eventually became a branch of the University of North Dakota. With that came finances and buildings and more adding of space to the point where it was a 28-acre campus on the edge of a little town of 800 people. And eventually there was a, was a fire uh, on one of the buildings and the UND decided to pull out of it and so they took their college and they, they went home and the campus sat there empty. At that point, Trinity Bible College was in a hospital building in Jamestown and it, the whole campus was in one big building. And so... Roy Weed, who was the president of the college, started driving down to Ellendale, North Dakota. Once a week, he attended every chamber of commerce meeting. He got to know every businessman in town. He got to know every school teacher. He got to know everybody whose life was going down the tubes because the one big industry in town had pulled out. And then near that fall, he told all of the townspeople of Ellendale, I would like to bring Trinity Bible College to this campus. So I'm going to ask the state of North Dakota to sell it to me for a dollar. And their hearts just sunk. They're like, we thought you had a plan. He did have a plan, but all he had was a dollar. And the University of North Dakota, afraid of having to maintain this thing, actually sold him all 28 acres and 17 buildings for a dollar. So that would have been early 70s. Mid-80s, I attend there, and one of the deals was they had to build a, a couple of buildings, and they built a, a men's dorm, and that was Kessler Hall. So I, I check in my freshman year to Kessler Hall. In the basement, there's a little prayer room. And uh, I don't want to say nobody really valued prayer, but it looked a lot like a closet, except there was carpet everywhere, and it, it was, was kind of rough. And so early in the school year, they were trying to build a little prayer room there that would be going around the clock, so they asked all of us to sign up for one hour, you know, and I was gung-ho. I wanted the full experience. I didn't come to watch. And so I said, I want to sign up for 2 a.m. So I signed up for 2 a.m., which is about the worst, because you know you're going to go to sleep, and you're going to go to sleep after, you know. So I do this, and I sign up, and I remember going down to that little prayer room and just pouring my heart out to God in that prayer room. God, would you move? Would you touch me? Don't waste this season, Lord. I want everything you have for me. Just pouring my heart out. 2.15. Like, that was it, you know. That's all I had in me. And for the rest of the 45 minutes, I'm, you know, praying for people by name that I don't remember and all my grade school. Th- you know, it's just rough. But I wanted all of that. It's interesting in our Christian walk, they teach us a lot about how to live, not so much about how to pray. We just don't talk about it that much. And you've been there, you've signed up for those slots, and you've got into it and realized there, there's not enough here for me to, I don't, I don't know what to say. 
Paul had almost, almost as much to say about prayer as he did your salvation. He talks constantly about prayer. He's known as an apostle, but he was also a remarkable intercessor. When Paul prays, it's almost always about or for people. Very rarely even ever referring to himself in prayer. I thank God for you. I constantly thank God in my prayers for you. I always give thanks for you. There are probably more of Paul's prayers recorded in the Bible than any other individual. All through the New Testament. As he writes, he says, I pray, and he just launches into it. And the thing about Paul is there's no ramp up. Like, there, he just goes from conversation right into prayer. Take note, Bridge family, you have full permission to pray anywhere and everywhere. You really can. You meet somebody in the store that has a need, you don't need to go back and gather in your prayer closet. You can do it right there. Paul was in the middle of conversation. We just, okay, now I'm praying. Oh, we're praying. Okay, we're doing this. The other day, I picked up a piece of furniture at a secondhand store, and the guy who was loading it into my van said, man, I feel rough. I said, you do? He goes, yeah, it just, just hit me. I said, okay, let's pray. Put my hand on his shoulder. Didn't ask. Okay, he could have told me to stop, but he didn't. Just launch into it. You have permission to do that. Now, don't lay your hand on people's heads and yell Shundai and push them down, okay? That's rude in church. Don't do it in Walmart. But you can launch into prayer. It, we have made this thick veil between conversation and prayer that Paul himself did not acknowledge. So he would just teach and pray and, and teach and pray. Paul was big on putting prayer right into the conversation. He would transition from the moment of talking people to praying. And John 17 is a perfect picture of this. I think it's where he, he might have learned about this from the other apostles because Jesus would periodically be talking to his disciples and suddenly just talk to his father. In context, John 16 and John 17 go together. In John 16... He is teaching them, and then suddenly in John 17, he's talking to his father. To Jesus, there was no right place to pray. It just was always the right thing to do. Paul's habit of writing and breaking into prayer in the middle of it reflected this understanding that that veil between the two worlds is not that thick. Couple that idea with the idea that Paul prayed frequently with the dynamic of the Bible being inspired by the Holy Spirit we have prayers from Paul that were given to him by the Holy Spirit. These were God's words that Paul was speaking back to God. These deserve to be studied. He gives us a glimpse a little bit about what's going on. Actually, in Romans, it says, Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You know, it's 2.15 in the prayer room. We don't know how to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Leave that up there for just a second. Okay, if you grew up Pentecostal, you made that about speaking in tongues. Because Pentecostal, okay? <laughs> like, I grew up Pentecostal. We made everything about speaking in tongues. And I do speak in tongues, but I actually think this is broader than this. I don't think this is just about speaking in tongues. I think this is about the ache of your heart that the Lord places in you and just comes out at opportune times. I think the non-charismatic who doesn't really know what to make of spiritual gifts, but who's in the ICU waiting room praying over their child and they're just gut-wrenchingly sobbing, I think they're entering into this realm. I think that's the same thing. That's not limited to speaking in tongues. 
When you see people draw limiting fences around who receives something and who does not receive something, it's always interesting to me they always put themselves inside the fence. There's no fence on this one. Your friends, or perhaps you, if you have never felt any sort of baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is still available to you. So Paul not only gets the groanings of the Spirit, but he gets actual phrases and words to use. And in the book of Ephesians, he prays and writes things that God is thinking about you. You can take these prayers and you can apply them to your heart. They fit. Imagine Paul in prison, gripping his pen, looking at his little corkboard full of Polaroids of people like you, and he writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. His heart is so tender towards the church of Ephesians. That's why I want to get some practical instruction from the scriptures on the prayer life of Paul. He was tasked with launching a movement, and the only thing he had was words. He couldn't force anybody to do anything. And so he dedicated a significant amount of those words, even that he wrote down, to prayers that are a template for us. So we're going to start looking at the prologue of his prayers this morning. We'll get to prayers as we go on, on down the road, but really looking just at a prologue. But before we do that, what's the deal with Ephesians? What do we need to know about Ephesians? Okay, four things real quick that you have to know about Ephesians. And when you get into a Bible study and you're talking about Ephesians and nobody knows anything, you can say, well, these four things. And then you'll, you'll be the expert. Okay, these four things. Number one, he writes from prison. He's not at the Ritz-Carlton. He's not at the Super 8. He's at the Crowbar Hotel. Okay? He's in jail pre-human rights. Okay? Like, this isn't jail like you and I think of jail. This is bad. This is before three hots and a cot. He's in a bad spot. And in a New Testament jail, probably a cave, maybe has some food if people brought him any, and a pen and something to write with. He sits down and he writes, again, get your mind, he's in prison. Blessed, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is not saying, I am in a heavenly place. He is not saying, where I am right now is the blessing of God. No, I'm in jail. He is saying that his treasure is somewhere other than where he currently is. Would that we all would understand that where we are now is not our final destination. Some of you are, you're in a mess. Like, some of it you caused, some of it was caused unto you. But whatever the case, you're in a picture. This is not the end. And Paul, from prison, says, God has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He's like, I'm in jail right now, but this, is, this can't last forever. Because I'm not an immortal body. I'm going to die eventually. I mean, I'm not going to be here forever. I may be here for the rest of my life, but things are going to change. I'm not here forever. You can rest assured your situation is going to change. It's going to. And so he writes about blessings in heavenly places from jail. Second thing you need to know about Ephesians. He writes to people who he spent three years with. Paul's life was mostly on the road. Hardly ever unpacked a suitcase. Went from place to place to place to place. If he were a baseball player, his walk-on music would have been the Allman Brothers' Ramblin' Man. 
because he was always on the move. The most conservative estimates of Paul's travel schedule say that he walked, mostly walked, 10,000 miles in his lifetime. Some people say up to 16,000 miles, depending on arguing about which of the, route, the routes that he traveled. But in this lifetime that walked 10 to 15, 16,000 miles, who was place after place after place all over the known world, he spends three years in Ephesus, longer than he spent anywhere else in the service of Jesus. In this frenzy moving around, he set down roots, and for this reason, Paul's role shifted. He writes to the Ephesians differently than he writes to other people. Because he wasn't just an apostolic missionary to them. He was an apostolic pastor. He loved this place and these people probably in a different way than he loved anybody else on the earth. And when he left, that place had his heart. Here's what you don't know about pastoring. You, prob you probably couldn't. I don't know how anybody would know this. And I don't know that I knew it when I started but even when you move on, your heart doesn't understand that you're not their pastor anymore. You just don't. You always look at people who you have led from a pastoral you with some sense of responsibility. And there are people, I look back and my heart just like I'm they're still connected. Paul looked at the Ephesians that way. He's like, Colossians, yeah, you're okay, but the Ephesians. I mean, he wouldn't have said it publicly, but he wasn't in Colossia for three years. He was in Ephesians, in Ephesus for three years. Third thing you need to know about it. The audience for the book goes way beyond the Ephesians. It's written to Ephesus, but the information in the book is not, it's not Ephesus-centric. It's not all about Ephesus. In fact, early transcripts they found often leave it blank to the church at blank. And the theory is that some of the church fathers would add in names as they would address this book and send it to different places around the world. It's like to the church at Gaul, to the church at Greece, to the church at the culture house. He would add in. And so it's a very, it's to all of us. It's not just to the Ephesians. Finally, number four, and this kind of ties in with that. It's a general epistle. The tone of it makes it accessible for everybody. An epistle, does anybody know what an epistle means, what the word is? It's a letter, okay? When you look at the, in the New Testament, these are letters written to people or groups. An epistle is a letter. Paul wrote most of the New Testament epistles, which make them Pauline epistles from Paul. He wrote these from prison, so it's a subgroup called the prison epistles, and it's also called a general epistle. Probably the closest one that is anything like it is the book of Romans, which was written to people but really applies to all of us in a very profound way. Timothy was written to, not a trick, Timothy. Okay, some of you are like, I thought Timothy wrote that. No, Timothy was written to Timothy, but the book of Ephesus was written to the church at Ephesus and the church at large. We can all learn from it. Again, the closest approach we would have is probably the book of Romans. Romans talks about the role of faith in the individual, Ephesians includes more of God's work in the community of believers. Romans reads your mail, reads my mail. Ephesians reads our mail. Ephesians is a really good book to look at 
if you're wanting to be set together in cobblestones with other people because it talks about us in the general, the collective we, okay? Talks about us that way. So he starts the first chapter talking about their identity as a body of people and how through the grace of Jesus, they are different than they were. That is a huge theme for Ephesians. They are a group of people who have gone from death to life. And he said that as someone who spent three years with them. It's one thing to say that over somebody you'll never see again. But he had lived with them for three years and he said, you really went from death to life. Some of you have read the Jim Collins book, business book, Good to Great. Good to Great is about the theory that it's not that hard to, write, to run a good business. It's not that hard to run a business that keeps up with market growth. It's difficult to take a business from good to great where year after year it actually beats the market. You do, you do better. What he is saying here is not that you have gone from good to great. You went from death to life. Way harder. Because dead is dead. Now, I was going to cut this quote, but um, Jen said I had to use it anyway. Uh, as one of my favorite characters on The Princess Bride, Miracle Max. Miracle Max says, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually one thing you can do. You go through his pockets for loose change. You were all dead. You weren't mostly dead. Mostly dead is still a little bit alive. But he says the Ephesians went from death to life. That's not a little tweak or a little adjustment. You didn't get better, you got alive. If you see somebody and they're concerned about you and they say, you don't look so good, you can say, well, I was dead. I might be mostly dead, but I'm mostly dead as some alive. And the gap between dead and alive is massive. In Ephesians, he said, you have gone from being dead to being alive, and now you have a destiny that a dead man didn't have. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose of his will. He's saying because you were dead and you're alive now, he has a plan for your life. You are not pinballing through circumstances at random. Some of you feel that where you are right now is you, you've lived like a pinball, like ding, 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 yeah, how did I get here? Why am I here? Why, you know, was this the result of my mistakes? No, no, he has a plan. And because you've gone from death to life, he is working in your life to accomplish that plan. You're like, is this it? No, this is not it any more than Paul being in prison was it but he is working it for your good. And he goes on to talk about the love that God lavished on him. The love of the Father changes the very nature of who we are. All this talk of radical change leads him to explaining his prayer strategy. This is what Paul had towards Ephesus that I did not have in that little prayer room in Ellendale, North Dakota. A plan, a clue, an idea of what he wanted to do or say. Looking at verse 15 and 16. 
says, for this reason, stop for a second, for what reason? What is he talking about? For this reason, earlier on in the scripture, he says, because you were sealed with a promise, because of this, somebody's going to say that because of this. He also talks very specifically in those verses before that, both to the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, I've brought you together, and because you are together, and because you are sealed, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He comes right out of the gate giving thanks for these people because he had heard about two facets of their life, that they loved the Lord and that they loved one another. They were accomplishing the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, love others. He's like, you're doing it. Guys, you're doing it. He's writing him back after he's left. You're actually doing it. He knows that they have faith, And if they have faith and express love to one another, the message that he preached to them for three years must have stuck. Another true preacher confession. You never know what sticks with people. Like, you just never do. You you preach what you think is a barn burner, and you just hear nothing, and then you preach, you know, you just kind of like punt one out there, and people come and go, oh, that changed my life. He's like, whatever I preached, it must have stuck with you because you love the Lord and you love one another. Not all churches got this response. Church at Galatia was corrected by Paul for have already following another gospel. So he wasn't handing out these these letters like thank you notes. You get accolades, you get accolades, you get accolades. No, he's like, Ephesians, you're following the plan. You're loving one another and you're loving the Lord. It must have worked. That's what makes it so much more tragic When John is writing to the Ephesians in the book of Revelation, he speaks very differently. Paul says, you love God, you love one another. Go Ephesians. Revelation 2, 4, 5. To the same group of people, John says, written in the early Revelation, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, wherefrom you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you. I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. John, at the direction of an angel, rebukes them for lacking in the very areas that Paul said they were strong. Is this like a matter of perspective? Are they looking, you know, because, you know, sometimes parents have different perspectives. There's dad clean and there's mom clean, Right? Dad, dad organizes, cleans the house. Mom comes home, house is not clean. I thought it was clean. Is it a different perspective? No, it's not perspective. There are a couple of things that contributed from them going from Paul going, you guys got to figure it out. You're doing exactly what I told you. You go to John saying, you've forgotten your first love. What happens in this season? A couple of things. One, the passage of time. It's about 30 years between the writing of Ephesus and the writing of the Revelation here. And the church that was recognized as deeply loving God and then eventually became the church that had lost its love for God had gone through a 30-year span where their hearts had grown very cold. Some of you are like, 30 years seems like forever. No, it doesn't. Let me give you a marker. This will help some of you. Beanie Babies. David Koresh and Whitney Houston singing, I Will Always Love You. 30 years ago. 
doesn't seem that long if you remember those things. 30 years ago this week, Kelsey and I were celebrating our fourth anniversary. Doesn't seem that long. 30 years ago, we had our first son. I remember the shoes I was wearing when he was born. Okay, that, that, some of you, you're 20, 30 years old. That, that you, ah, 30 years is a long time. Let me trust you. I'm not that much older. It's not that long. There were people in Ephesus at the time of their downfall when they got the word from the book of Revelation that they lost their first love that remembered the shoes they were wearing when the letter of Ephesus came to the church. They're like, wait a minute. How did we get from there to here so quickly? Our fascination with what is immediate makes 30 years seem like an eternity, but anybody who's got any kind of perspective will tell you 30 years is a second. There is a danger to feeling like you have made it spiritually because if you feel like you have, unless you've got one foot in the grave and one on a banana peel, you could still jack this up. You really could. You know, youth ministry. We spent years and years telling these kids, oh, you're, you're at this incredibly crucial time. You, could, you, know, you don't want to shipwreck your faith. You want to live your... And all of that's true. However, I have learned that even in my 50s, I've got friends in their 50s that are just complete, completely messing their lives up. You're like, I thought you made it. You raised your kids. You went from broke to having a little... Like, life got easier, and you still managed to abandon the faith. How did that happen? Because time wears on us in like, almost like an erosive thing. And if we're not being renewed on the inside, it wears us down. We begin to lose that fire within. And suddenly we go from, I thank God for all of you that you love one another and are following the gospel to you've lost your first love. You're like, how did that happen? If you think you made it, time is actually working against you because complacency needs time to develop. In that short time, they went from exemplary to devastated, from getting accolades from Paul to the apo- apo- apocalyptic, I could see the word in my head, apocalyptic smackdown from John because they weren't what they used to be. If only they had been warned, you know? Like if Paul, if Paul had said, hey guys, you know, there's, there's going to be some issues. Oh, this is awkward. They were warned. They were warned about this. Three years before he writes the book of Ephesus, Paul is on a missionary journey, and he's, in, uh, he's 60 miles away from Ephesus. And he sends a runner to Ephesus. Now keep in mind, he's pastored there for three years. Now he's traveling. He hasn't written the book of Ephesus yet. But he's 60 miles away, and he sends a runner and says, go bring the elders. I've got a message for them. Four days journey. Can you imagine being one of the elders? Guy shows up and says, Paul says to come four days. Yeah, Paul said, why couldn't he have told you? Like, why did he, why, he's like, no, everybody, get on the church bus, let's go. They all make the 60-mile journey, four days, which in a church bus could be four days. And you can sense the tension. It's why, why has he called us here? Why is this so important? Why didn't he just tell the courier? And Paul, you know, probably with some dramatic fashion says, you're probably wondering why I called you all here. And then he tells them, this is Acts 20, 29 and 31. Place this in time now. He's pastored them for 30 years. He hasn't written the book of Ephesus yet. It's in the middle there. And he tells them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That's their warning 30 years before the book of Revelation. They didn't just get the book of Ephesus. They didn't just get Paul as their pastor for three years. They got a special meeting with Paul in a side room before the evangelistic crusade where he said, guys, I'm telling you, there will be wolves coming from the outside and there will be trouble from the inside. People that you expect to attack you will and people that you expect to defend you will also attack you. In some sense, it feels like we're living in a little bit of an Ephesians 1 moment for the bridge. Really an exciting time, okay? It's, it's like there's life on worship, there's life on community. Like, it's, it, it's an exciting time to be here. God is breathing on us. It's the stuff that pastors long for. And it's the stuff that a, apostolic pastors like Paul knows is ripe for attack because the enemy doesn't like what's happening in Ephesus any more than he likes what's happening here. Nobody in Ephesus willingly opened themselves up for attack. It just came. And they got complacent and a little bit lazy. So they're wrestling with 30 years of passivity, with their hearts that were complacent in spite of being warned, but there's another thing that got them off base during those 30 years. It was a drift into lesser things than the gospel. As we've established, Paul starts the church, leaves it for three years, he hands it off to a young man named Timothy, and it's easy to imagine what those last couple weeks of overlap were before Paul leaves. Paul is giving him instruction, like, you know, okay, this is how you make the bank deposit. This is how you do this. Don't forget to lock this door. This person volunteers, never shows up. There, he's telling him all the stuff that you would tell the new guy coming in, okay? And even after all of that, Paul leaves, and it's like, oh, I forgot a bunch of stuff. And so he writes him a letter. And in 1 Timothy, he writes now to Timothy, who's pastoring the church at Ephesus. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 1 Timothy. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It's like, I left you there to keep the ship straight, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. He's like, stay there, stay focused, because there will be some that will get sucked into speculation rather than what they actually know about the gospel. If you're not vigilant, the things that they are so devoted to right now will fade into the woodwork and they'll forget what they agreed was crucial and they'll start to pursue things that mean less than or absolutely nothing. You can almost hear Timothy saying, you gotta be kidding me. Are you serious? Paul, you were their pastor for three years and you're telling me that when you leave, some of them are going to be tempted to follow lesser things than the gospel? And Paul tells him, Timothy, there are people in your congregation who are going to be tempted to get off into the weeds debating genealogies and speculation rather than focusing on the stewardship of their own hearts and their resources for the kingdom. 
There is a segment of the church in America that is absolutely blinded by issues and fascinations that have no more to do with the gospel of Jesus than the man on the moon. And they are consumed by it. People declaring God's blessings or curses over the most inane things and placing those things on par or above faith in Jesus. If you are more consumed with the side issues of theology than you are the idea of being saved by grace, you are already getting off into the weeds. If you're more concerned with worship style than worship, you're getting off into the weeds. If you're more concerned with political events and current events than you are with eternity, you're getting off into the weeds. And I happen to find all those things interesting. Okay, so I'm not saying that we don't ever think about them or that a Christian doesn't even have a word into those things. I'm just saying that very easily we can get sucked off into those things and the gospel suffers. And suddenly, instead of getting letters from Paul saying, attaboy, we're getting letters from John saying, you lost it. You lost it. Those things are not outside the purview of the Christian mind. They are not central. When they become central, what was central gets pushed out. The following story is completely true. Okay? And if I've ever led you to believe the story was true, it was true. I haven't made things up. But this one is so loony that I have to predicate it with that. Years ago, I'm pastoring, and a couple comes to me, and they want to meet with me, but they don't want to tell me why. Okay, this is a red flag for pastors. It almost never goes well. I've got friends that will not meet with people in their church without the people telling them what's about. I, I won't do that because, honestly, you come here every week and listen to me for 45 minutes, and you never have any idea what I'm going to say. So that doesn't seem fair. I should extend the same to you. But this was one of those. And they were just really secretive about it. So I go to the meeting, and when I get to the meeting, uh, I walk in, and they've got a projector and a screen and some speakers set up. And I'm like, oh, there's a presentation. And I sit down, and they begin to speak. They started talking, and instantly, I mean, a half a sentence in, I knew that they had fallen down the rabbit hole of political conspiracy. I don't mean like they have some suspicions. They're in full boogie. And I'm not naive enough to believe everything that you see in the news. I'm just not. I'm a born skeptic. I'm skeptical of what we see in the news, but I'm also skeptical of conspiracy theories. So I'm, you know, sorry, it's just me and Jesus is about the only people I trust. But I was polite. I just listened. I had nothing to contribute. I'm just wondering how long this slideshow is. Turns out it's pretty long. But I still wasn't concerned until they punch the button and a video pops up, and it's me. And I'm preaching. And they let me preach on the screen for about 30 seconds, and they stop it, and they said, when you said those code words, we knew that you were with us. Now we have a situation. 
And I said, okay, I had not said a word. We're 30 minutes in, I'm just sitting. I said, okay, you gotta stop, you gotta stop right now. Stop, stop, stop. They said, what? They said, there's more. I said, no, no, I need you to stop. Because right now I said, I have one concern and that is that you are going to leave and think that I agree with you about anything. And that you're gonna retell this story as if I agreed with you. I'm telling you, I think this is all completely off base and I don't want to hear any more of it and I don't want you to tell anybody in the church. And hear me, I'm not making fun of these people. The story is strange, but they were not unintelligent and they actually were not unspiritual. Two weeks earlier, one of them had given me a very clear prophetic word that was very accurate. They weren't dumb. But I never saw them after that day. It was over. Because just like Paul wrote to the Ephesians as a warning, the more devoted you are to myths or tangents that promote speculation than you are to the stewardship of God in your life, the easier it is to just disappear. They were more committed to insider knowledge and secret truths than to the obvious truth of the gospel. And when I didn't join them in their little tangent, they checked out of that church. And I don't know that they've ever checked into another one. Paul is saying, it's not just that time is not on your side. The idea that you would let anything get between you and the simple gospel is dangerous. And that is not to say that we can't talk about things that are out there, we can't speculate, or we can't even be skeptical. No, it's not. It's when it gets in the way. And when it becomes your identity, instead of your identity being in Jesus... It doesn't matter if your faith is in hamburgers. It's going to lead you astray. So, 30 years go by. That's how they get there. They get pulled off into lesser things. The other thing that really led them off was the failure to guard the prophetic in their life. Remember, Paul had history with these people. Three years of worshiping together, of teaching, three years of sandwich Sundays, three years of serving together. Like, he's got some time. Let's make it real. They lived together, okay? They did church together. Three years of dream stream meetings, three years of church potlucks, baby dedications, baptisms. They'd done it all. The impact that they had had on the church of Ephesus was crazy. Ephesus was a host of one of the seven wonders of the world, a temple to the false god Artemis. It had been built 600 years earlier, then 300 years earlier it had been destroyed by a fire set by a madman, then they rebuilt it and it stood another 500 years. So they're right in the middle of this being not just the biggest thing in their town, but probably from their perspective, the biggest thing in the world. All emanates out of Ephesus. And the move of God in Ephesus among believers and people getting saved was so full during that day that it actually wrecked a sector of the economy related to this temple. Those that built the idols that people would take to the temple found that they had no market for their idols anymore because so many were coming to Jesus and they actually organized a riot to punish the believers for what they had done for their economy. Like, wow, how long did that take? That was 90 days after the gospel got there. They wrecked the economy of the city within 90 days. Acts 19, 25, 26. It's talking about a, a silver worker named Demetrius. And he gathered together in the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this fall has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This is so early in their time there. They just throw the whole church in upheaval. So they've got history. They've made impact. They are, in some respects, the hottest thing in town. Yet Paul writes to Timothy in his letter to the pastor Timothy. Hey, remember, don't forget this. He writes in chapter 1, 18 and 19, This charge I trust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you. He said, as an authority figure in your life, you have got to wage war with these prophecies. You've got to hang on to them. You've got to believe what the Lord said about you and pray for them. The Lord speaks from an entirely different perspective than you have. And what he says to you in the quiet of your own heart, even if it makes no sense at all, needs to be fought for if you're ever going to see it. You've got to wrestle with it. And he writes to Timothy, he's like, make war, wage war with these prophecies. Wrestle with them. The promises that you have, believe for them. Because when you quit believing for them, you begin to think that all you have is all you have. And all you have is not worth living for. Some of you have been waiting on a word from the Lord for a year or a decade. Like you've received a word and it's deep in you. And it has been so long since you heard it that you're even hesitant to talk about it with your family or your friends because it weighs heavy on you that you haven't seen it yet. The Lord says make war with those things. You may go to the grave fighting for that thing and not see it on this side of eternity. However, fighting for it during the course of your life will keep you true to Jesus. And you will see it in eternity. You're like, you mean I've got promises I'm not going to... Most of the promises to David were not fulfilled and won't be fulfilled until the end of the age. Most of the promises made to Jesus won't be fulfilled to the end of the age. The Lord may have spoken things that are so dear to his heart, into your heart, that they actually come to the end of the age. He says, fight for them now. If it comes now, great. If it comes later, great. But the act of fighting for those things actually keeps your heart pure. And when you begin to release those things and go, whatever, another dream comes in, and it's from the entire opposite side of the spectrum. And you start waging war for another word over your life. And you reap the benefits from it. And it's not God's perfect word. I want to ask if Zion would come down really quickly. We're just going to close up. Leaning into those prophecies and believing for them will result in your holding faith and having a clear conscience 30, 40, 50 years out. The Lord wants you to hold tight to those things and examine them in light of wisdom and God's word. Those that are the Lord's will hold up under scrutiny. Leaning into those prophecies and believing them will give you faith and a clear conscience. We hear so much of the danger of the prophetic that we've come to just dismiss it entirely. There is as great of danger in avoiding it. I don't want to be a people who heard promises and gave up and had other promises sneak in. Doubting has never served any of us well. It just doesn't. 
Back to the scriptures. What happens to those who have not waged war with the prophecies and believed God for what he said? The Bible says that by rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith. Paul is foreshadowing what happens to the Ephesians. I love you. I've served you for three years. I've preached to you. I'm going to write some other letters to encourage you. And some of you are still going to run aground. And someday there will be a letter written that will talk about you losing your first love. He writes it because it doesn't have to be that way. Stand with me if you would. We are in a sweet season as a church. But what a better time to commit for the long haul. And say, Lord, we want to believe for the things that you have said over us 20, 30, 40 years. I have children that I want to carry these burdens. Father, we ask right now that you would stir up words that you have placed in us deep. Promises you've made to us. Things that we look at and we say, I have no idea how this is going to come to pass. Father, we are better off battling for those words than we are surrendering and asking for the enemy to just fill in the blanks. So stir people with the words from their history right now, God. Stir them for belief and for faith in the promises and the callings of God that rest on them for this life or the next. We are better off believing for you in eternity than settling for less in this life. And Lord, as we dive into this book of Ephesians and we learn and we see what you have to say, we pray that we would do it of one mind to follow you all of our days. Father, I pray a blessing on the bridge right now. A blessing to stand and believe for the promises that you have. Right now, if you need encouragement to believe you've struggled, you've got a promise, but you've struggled with it, you just need a quick word of prayer of encouragement. Let me see your hand right where you're at. You've got a promise. There's up there, over here. You want to wage war with these things right here. Father, right now, I pray a blessing on those that are re-upping and saying yes again for promises that have felt like they've gone by the wayside that you would infuse new life into the promises of God and we would wage war with the prophecies over our life as, a, as individuals and as a body of people. You have a good hope and a good future for the bridge. And we say yes to that. In Jesus' name.